Okay, welcome to Think Jewish. And we're starting the new cycle. And this week's Shabbos is the portion of Noach. And the title is Rage No More, Transforming the Raging Floodwaters. So, let's make an introduction which is really important to know when we study the book of Genesis, the book of Bereshus. And that is that the Torah is not a history book of the world, of mankind, or of the Jewish people. That's not what the Torah is. There are many different parts of history that we only have an oral tradition. So what is the Torah? The word Torah, the definition of the word Torah is lessons, hora'ah. And every story that's in the Torah was put there because it carries an eternal lesson. That's the key word, eternal lesson. If the story of the flood is not applicable to me today, then it wouldn't be in the Torah. Maybe in an oral tradition, but it wouldn't be in the Torah. If it's in the Torah, then that story has to be a personal story to me, carrying a lesson to me in the year 2015 in North Miami, or wherever one may be. In Chassidus, this concept does not apply just to the general theme of the story, a story of a flood, but rather Chassidus takes it to all the details of the story. For example, in this week's story, the fact that it happened through a flood and not through some other natural disaster that the God would have brought is a detail that Chassidus needs to learn out of, what that means to me personally. Um, the fact that it was an ark, the, the exact details of the ark, that it was three stories high. And the fact that it was exactly 100, measure, 100 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. The fact that it had a pointy roof that came to a ama, one cubit wide was the peak. All of this is discussed in Chassidus as an eternal lesson, a detail that carries an eternal lesson for us. So it isn't just a natural story, gives me a natural lesson in how to respond to difficult times. Rather, we're talking about the details in Chassidus. Every detail of the story, the way it's documented in the Torah, because it was documented in the Torah, it becomes part of an eternal lesson to us. Even in Chassidus, this concept takes on a total new dimension when we introduce the famous Chassidic teaching. It's really, it's not quoted, it's not doesn't start in Chassidus, it's actually a medrash, but it's quoted in Chassidus and taken to a whole new level. Olam katan adam, That the human is a microscopic world which reflects everything of the macroscopic world. Which means everything that is to be found in the macroscopic world is found in the microscopic human. Therefore, now what we're saying is that in the microscopic human, there is this concept of Noah, there is this concept of the flood, there is this concept of the ark. So now we understand that the lesson is not just an eternal lesson in general, not even an eternal lesson from the details, but rather when the Torah tells the story of Noah and the flood and the ark, it's actually talking to each individual, to the Noah within them, to the flood within them, to the ark within them. So now we understand a whole magnum leap of what is really going on when we say that the Torah is a lesson for each person in each time. And that's what Chassidus talks about when it takes a timeless lesson of the Torah from a story that happened four and a half thousand years ago to a story to our lives here today.
Okay? So this is what really makes the Torah practically timeless and eternal, even as the world changes around us and the human experience changes with it. Nevertheless, there is within each person the Noah, the flood, and the ark. And every person, every generation, and every geographical location. It is to this Noah, flood, and ark that we're talking. Okay. Now let's take the flood just a, a level deeper, okay? The flood of this week's Torah portion has different names amongst the teachings of our sages. And one teaching, not one, but in some teachings it's called Mehamabal, the waters of the flood. On the other hand, it's also called Noach, the waters of Noach. Very interesting, two different names. Now, let's talk about this. One of the reasons that it's called the waters of Noah, even though in the simple story, Noah is the only person who was not the cause and responsible for bringing the flood, right? The verse says that God saw that the whole generation was evil, but Noah found favor in his eyes. So that means that Noah was the only one who was not the cause of the flood. So why would we call the flood the waters of Noah? It's the waters of every person in that generation other than Noah. Why call it the waters of Noah? So one simple interpretation is, one reason for this is, that Noah was the leader of his generation. And being that Noah was the leader of his generation, therefore Noah was responsible to influence his generation. The fact that Noah was responsible to influence his generation and nevertheless his, his generation fell to such a low steep in their morality is Noah's responsibility. And thus we now understand why one reason why it's called the waters of Noah because Noah was the person who was responsible for the flood waters because he didn't influence the people of his generation to be morally right, better, decent mention. Okay? That's one teaching. However, there's another reason to why it's called the waters of Noah and that is a teachings which is in Chassidus. So, the waters of Noah actually means, Noah means comfort. If you remember, by the end of Genesis in last week's Torah portion, we are told why is the waters called the waters, uh, why was Noah, I'm sorry, why is Noah called Noah? This one will bring us comfort. And by the way, what the verse over there is talking about is not the story of the flood. Over there it's talking about that Noah was actually the one that created the plow. So since the time when Adam was cursed that the earth won't give forth its, its fruits easily, it was so difficult and he created a plow. But that's not the story I want to focus on now. I just want to focus on the word Noah means comfort. So therefore, now we have two names for the flood which when juxtaposed will give us a beautiful insight of the personal timeless story of Noah and the flood within each of us. Okay? Let's talk about the two names. The name, the water of the waters of the flood, Meha Mabel. What does that mean? So in Chassidus we refer to it and it's explained as the King Solomon in songs. He says, many waters cannot extinguish the love. And we look at that as what? As we're talking about the Jew has an innate, his soul has an innate love to God. Nevertheless, when the soul comes down into this world, into the confines of the body, 
it is consistently battered upon with raging floodwaters. What are the raging floodwaters that we're talking about over here, which should and could extinguish this love that we have for God? But nevertheless, King Solomon says in the beauty of the Jewish people that even the many waters cannot extinguish the love. So actually, we're talking about, we're talking about, according to the teachings, we're talking about the raging, tumultuous waters of the chaos of earning a living. By the time a person is done trying to earn a living, that difficulty, raging waters, the tumultuous chaos that goes on, it pulls us into it. It closes our mind to everything but to earn a living and a horrible fright in not being able to learn a earn a living. When we go through this, day in and day out, we worry. The bills are coming. We don't know where to turn. Here's a tuition. Here's a bill here. Here's a medical bill. Here's a food bill. Here's a car insurance bill. Here the car broke down. We need a mechanic. How can we have the natural flow of our soul to be able to love God by the time this raging waters is finished with us? We feel so thrown back and forth, banged against the rocks of the shore. Every time we try to get up, we save a couple of dollars. We think things are getting a little bit better. Slam, another bill. Slam, we find out that the position is closed. They're downsizing, right? And all of a sudden, that fear just close, it makes us close-minded. It just completely drowns us in its chaos that we really don't have the power to be able to just have that natural flow of feeling close to God and loving God. Rather, we're constantly running for our lives. So when we talk about the raging waters of the flood, we're talking about these raging waters, the tumultuous, the chaos that life throws us in to just to try to earn a living and survive. So when we talk about the waters of the flood, we're talking about this raging tumultuous water. On the other hand, what do we just say the water is called? The waters of Noah. I shared with you that one of the reasons it's called the waters of Noah is because Noah means comfort. Thus we're saying the exact opposite of what we just said. On one hand, we call it the waters of the flood, tumult and on the other hand we're talking talking about the waters of comfort meaning that it's a state of mind where we just are able to be calm comfortable and thus the natural flow of feeling close to God protected by God loved by God is just there so what are we talking about which one is it do we look at the flood in our personal life? We're talking about the story as it affects us personally. Are we talking about the story in our personal life as it is the raging tumultuous storm waters of trying to earn a living? Or is it the waters of comfort? Is it May Mabel or is it May Noach? They're called both. What is it in our private lives? What is it in the eternal lesson of the story? So, in order to understand this, we're going to need to talk about 
why have the flood? Why? What was the reason for the flood? So we'll talk about it in the macroscopic world, why God brought the flood in the times of Noah. But then tonight we're going to have to jump from there to understand why would God bring a flood in every one of our lives? If the story is in the Torah and we're saying that that means it's eternal and that means it's individual and it exists within every single person in his own life, why would we each one have in our life a flood? Why would God do that? So let's go back to the simple story. In the simple story, the flood is a punishment upon the people of Noah's generation. And then let me read you the verse. And God saw the earth, and behold, it had become corrupted, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth has become full of robbery because of them. And behold, I am destroying them from the earth. So the story of the flood, of why God brought the flood in the history of the world, in the macroscopic world, is because it was a punishment because the people became immoral. Okay? Not so much just because of idolatry. Idolatry has been going on from the third generation. However, this really was because of the immorality between man and mankind. And as you know, we know from even the Jewish history, the destruction of the temple, God is much more tolerant when we sin against Him with idol worship than when we sin against each other with immorality. Okay? So, that's the simple story. Nevertheless, even upon the simple story of the history of the world, the flood in the macroscopic world, nevertheless, the, we're taught in our sages something very beautiful, that the flood was actually considered a mikvah. And according to the teachings, God emerged, submerged the world into this mikvah to purge it of the impurities that was caused by man's sin. And they get even so detailed by saying that that is the reason why the flood, the rain, was pouring down for 40 days and 40 nights. Because if you know the laws of the mikvah, a mikvah has to have 40 sa'ah of water. 40 sa'ah of water, if you look it up, there's different opinions. We follow the opinion of 14.3 liters. That's the, the opinion we follow when we build a mikvah. It should have... This, this amount, 40 times 14.3 um, liters. But either way, the 40 days and 40 nights is equivalent to the 40 sa'ah so that it should be a kosher mikvah in which the world was submerged to purify it and purge it of all the impurities that was caused by man's sin. So in the simple story, the flood was a reaction, a response for the sins of mankind. Nevertheless, let us now look at this, right? Be it as it may, if the reason for the flood, whether you say it was a punishment and or purification, it was brought about by man's sin. However, when we talk about the eternal story of the flood, when we talk about that every single person in his personal life has a Noah, has a flood, has to build an ark, we can't say that it's the reaction of sin. We can't say that God's saying a statement in the Torah eternally that every single human being will have committed such immoral sins that will be worthy of a flood. No. So now that we know from the introduction to tonight's lecture 
that the concept of the Torah, the stories of the Torah, is an eternal lesson. Not only a general eternal lesson, but a detailed eternal lesson. Not only a detailed eternal lesson, but really it's telling you what exists within you. And thus the story of the flood in the Torah tells me that within every person's life, individually, there's a Noah, there's a flood, and there has to be an ark that's built. Now I need to question, why does God bring upon each and every individual, each in their own level, why does God bring upon every individual a flood? What would be the purpose for that? Why? Why do we have to go through a flood? So, the answer... The secret to this lies in a verse in this week's Torah portion, and I'm going to read it to you in English. Now the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased. Listen to the next words. And they lifted the ark, and it rose off the earth. The reason why God brings upon us in our personal lives the raging tumultuous flood is in order that we go into our ark, and the ark and us in it, be lifted off the earth we need to understand what this means but that gave us the key there's a purpose for the flood in our lives and what is the purpose because when we build an ark and when we go into the ark the flood is the one that will lift us above the earth not only will it lift us above the earth but listen to the next following verses and the water became powerful and they increased very much upon the earth and the ark moved upon the waters, and the waters became exceedingly powerful upon the earth, and all the lofty mountains that were under the heavens were covered up, 15 cubits, which is approximately 22 and a half feet. Above did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered up. So not only is the flood here, the personal individual flood that God brings upon us in our own life, each individual differently, but we all have a flood. Why does God bring that flood? To lift us. We build an ark, we go into the ark, and through that, the flood lifts us off the earth. Not only does it lift us off the earth, it rises us higher than the most loftiest mountain. And not just plain, just higher than the loftiest mountain, but the waters lift us to 15 cubits, 22 and a half feet, which is also a concept of Siddhis, the number 15, 3 times 5. Not going to get into that tonight. I want to just talk about the general theme. What can I do this week in my personal life by understanding my personal individual flood, why God gave it to us, what does it mean when God commands us build an ark, and what does it mean go into the ark? So now that we understand the positive purpose for the flood, that it should lift us off the earth, higher than the loftiest mountains, 15 feet higher, 15 cubits higher than the loftiest mountain, what that is simply telling me is that the reason why God lifts, uh, gives a bring, wow, the reason why God brings a flood in our individual personal life is to lift us above and beyond our natural capacity. That's what it means to be lifted 15 cubits above the highest mountain in our personal earth. Now that we understand that the purpose of the flood, the raging tumultuous waters of chaos, 
is here not to drown us, but to lift us. Not just to lift us, but take us beyond our natural capacities. We understand that the only way this can happen is if we build an ark. And we go into the ark. What is the ark? Now we need to understand what is the ark in our personal life. What is the eternal ark that every single person in every single generation, in every single geographical place has, must build, must enter in order to survive his personal flood? Let's go ahead and give a look at this. The Hebrew word for ark in the Torah is teva, right? The word teva in Hebrew also means word. In the holy tongue of the Torah, the word teva means a word. So, now let's read what happens. As right before God is going to start the flood, the Lord said to Noah, come into the teva. We now know that what does that mean to us personally? Come into the word. What does that mean? Very interesting. Chassidus tells us, the sages explain to us, that the word teva, which means word, over here means specifically word of prayer. Which leads me to a couple of questions. Why specifically the words of prayer rather than the words of Torah? Wouldn't you think that the words of Torah are more powerful? The words of Torah are the words of God. The words of prayer are my words. Why would we say no? What will save you is the words of prayer. Question number one. Question number two. What does it mean come into the word? Sounds very poetic. And I could just leave it there and you'll all think, oh, that must be deep. No, let's be practical. What does it mean come into the word? Question number three. How does the raging tumultuous waters of earning a living lift the word of prayer off the, off the earth higher than the loftiest mountains? Let's be, what is it telling me? To be very, uh, you know, that's, that's not what's going to help us. The whole point of understanding that's an eternal story and the details of the story are eternal and they're individualized to us in our life is so that we can use them. If I'm going to leave you here with some deep guru words, that's not going to help me or you. So that's why these questions. Let's hammer away. What exactly are we saying? Why the words of prayer which comes from man rather than the words of Torah which are the words of God? What does it mean go into the words? And what does it mean that the waters, the raging tumultuous waters of earning a living lifts the words of prayer? And remember, since we come into the word, therefore it lifts us with the word. What does that mean? Okay. So let's talk about this arc of prayer. Prayer, in the true Hasidic experience of what prayer is, is an artist's process and labor of studying the deeper spiritual concepts. One, deeper spiritual concepts of God and his relationship with creation. Two, then to concentrate and meditate upon one such concept until three, the intellectual knowledge of the mind is focused crystal cleared and transformed into a feeling of the heart. So let's go over these three steps of what Hasidic prayer means. What Hasidic prayer means is that 
first of all, we need to study some deeper spiritual concept. Which Hasidic spiritual concept? No, I'm not talking about understanding angels. I'm talking about to have some understanding of God, some understanding of His relationship with His creation, primarily me. Why? Why do I have to focus and work so hard on understanding God and God's relationship to me? Then I have to really work it so that I can transform it from intellectual piece of knowledge to an emotional feeling of the heart. And the answer is because according to Chassidus, the primary focus and purpose of prayer is to create, to nurture, and to reveal within my heart a feeling of love for God. Now, according to this teaching, it's a teaching of the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, this, the words I'm about to tell you, he says that creating fear of God is not hard. All you have to do is train yourself to see God in everything. For example, we're taught that when you look at the face of a human, Jewish or non-Jewish, when you look at the face of a human, you should see God's name, the four letters. The eyes are the Yud, the ears are the hay, the nose is the Vav, the mouth is the hay. And what is this teaching? You'll see in many synagogues, they have a poster with a big picture of a menorah spelling out God's name. And what do they write there? They write the verse, Shevisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. I have God always in front of me. If you learn that whatever you look at, you're seeing God, then you'll always feel what? Watched by God. The presence of God. Human nature, as you and I both know, is that when we're being watched, we don't like to be bad. Just remember the five students. Remember Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the famous Rivaz, before he passed away. What happened? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was asked by his students, give us one teaching. You're about to pass away. Give us the monumental teaching, your last teaching. And what did he say to them? May the fear of heaven be upon you like the fear of man. And they looked at him and said, that's it? Like the fear of man? And he said, no. That when a person is about to sin, if another person sees him, he'll be afraid to sin. Just feel that way about God. Just feel that God is watching you and you'll be afraid to sin. So the concept of, of learning how to have fear of God it's just to always feel that God is there and God is watching you. According to the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, that's easy. Prayer is a whole different concept. Prayer is the process of creating a personal love for God. Now you understand why the art of prayer, according to Chassidus, is to understand God as best as we can. To be able to understand God's relationship with creation. What is the relationship that's consistently and continuously going on between creator and creation? And then, most importantly, if I don't zone it in to God's relationship with me, it's just a relationship with the big wide world, I won't love God. I love the God who has a relationship with moi, me. Now you understand the process of Hasidic prayer and why Hasidic prayer takes so long. And that's a key word here. 
it takes time. It takes a lot of labor and effort to do prayer the way Hasidic prayer is meant to be. One of the key things here is, besides knowing, because even the person who is fortunate enough to spend his life studying Torah, it doesn't make a difference if he is of this Torah study style of deep analysis and perception. It doesn't make a difference if he is of the Torah style student that doesn't go that deep, but just moves, picks up a vast amount of Torah knowledge. That doesn't make a difference because everyone has to then go to the process of prayer where he takes the spiritual intellect of the mind, focuses, concentrates, really meditates in order to transform what I know to what I feel. They're two different parts. Most of us don't feel what we know. And that's what prayer is all about. And the only way to do that is by really personalizing what you know and taking the time and effort. So for working people, this is more on Shabbat. On Shabbat, you should take more time in your prayer. You should know something. Know what you want to think about and focus on and meditate. Now let's talk about this concept of come into the ark. Come into the words. Because what we just shared is that if the job of prayer is to create a practical, tangible feeling of your heart, you cannot create love to God if you're texting while you're praying. You cannot create a feeling of love for God if while you're praying you cannot help but thinking about what happened yesterday, what's going on right now in your house or office, and what you have to do for the rest of the day in your office. Come into the ark means that in order to create a love for God, we need to completely create an airtight. If something's not airtight, it will drown, not float. So thus the word come into the words of prayer. Because if you want to create the purpose of prayer, if you want to create a feeling, if you want to nurture that feeling, if you want to reveal the love which lies within the heart, the love for God, you've got to come into the words. Not just build it and ship it. Thus we understand now what exactly is the flood? That's the tumultuous, raging chaos of trying to earn a living. We understand what it means, the ark. Those are the words of prayer. We understand what it means to come into the ark because the real words of prayer is here to create a feeling of love for God. And you can't do that if you don't come into the words. Complete focus, complete concentration, complete personalization, complete meditation in order to transform what I know about God and His relationship to me into what I feel for God. What we don't know yet is how exactly 
does the tumultuous raging waters of chaos in trying to earn a living lift this experience of love so let's talk about three levels of love the verse commands us you all notice from the Shema right the first word of the second paragraph says what and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might so not only does the verse command us to love God it talks about three levels of love with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might Rashi helps us out and he tells us on the spot what is these three different levels let's look at what Rashi says with all your heart so he teaches us two interpretations number one because the word heart can be spelled with one bet lamed bet chaf libcha lev is heart it only has one bet in this verse it says bechol levavicha with two vets so Rashi tells us that love him with your two inclinations the good and the evil another explanation he says with all your heart is that your heart should not be divided at variance with the omnipresent love him with all your heart so now we know what it means don't just love God when you're in the synagogue and you're feeling the good inclination love him even when you're eating even when you're doing passionate things of your own love him with both sides of your heart love him in synagogue love him at home love him in the office and love him on your next sea cruise okay then Rashi quotes the words and with all your soul what does it mean with all your soul even if he takes your soul meaning life even if God God forbid decrees upon someone that his life should come to an end at that moment he should still love God okay and this is very practical it means that God forbid if a person has a terminal illness he should love God through it not easy but that's what it is then we have the third statement which is and with all your might what does Rashi explain here again he gives two interpretations number one he uses the word ma'oidcha might he brings a proof that ma'oidcha means your money your possessions with all your possessions there are people whose possessions are more precious to them than their own bodies therefore it says and with all your possessions one explanation another explanation is the word ma'odcha comes from the word mida you know what the word mida means it means attribute that means another explanation is you shall love God with whatever measure attribute he meets out to you whether it be the measure of good or the measure of retribution and he brings a proof that you have to love God in times where he's giving you good equally so in times when he's giving you retribution and he says thus also did David say I will lift up the cup of salvation he's glorifying God in the time of good and then there's another verse I found trouble and grief and I called out in the name of the Lord again he's calling out to the Lord in the name to God in the time of a measure of retribution okay so we have three levels of love now in the teaching of Chassidus, the first two levels of love are upon earth, meaning it's within our capacity. 
It is within our capacity to naturally love God with all our heart and even with all our soul. That means, yes, to love God with all our soul. That means even at the moment that one's life is being taken away from him. Yes, to find out, God forbid, that a person has terminal illness and for him to love God throughout it is not easy, but it is within the human capacity. It's huge as a mountain, but upon earth. However, the love level of and with all your might is to break out beyond one's natural capacity. Chassidus focuses very much on Bechol Ma'oitcha. It says that the love with all your heart and the love with all your soul, that means with all your life, you can come through human intellect to build that type of love. However, to come to the point of with all your might, now this is interesting. It says with all your heart, with all your life, and then with all your might. What does that mean? That means that with all your might is even more difficult than to love God with all your life. Because even to love God through a terminal illness, God should protect us from it, is still within the human capacity. My mind can come to that conclusion so crystal clear and powerfully that I could actually turn it into a feeling. However, to love God on the level with all your might is to break beyond the human capacity. That is what it means when I said to you before that the words of prayer is the ark and the purpose of the tumultuous raging waters of chaos is what lifts us up above the loftiest mountain even higher 15 cubits above the highest mountain. What that represents is that only through the experience of raging tumultuous chaos of having to earn a living to go through that chaos to go through the fear of not being able to earn a living and then to go into the ark into your prayer and then to be able to completely focus come into your words to be able to really focus on God and God's relationship to me on God's love for me and God's protection to me even as the bills are coming in and I don't know where I'm going to get my next my next paycheck from to be able to pray on that level in that time is the exact experience that turbo boosts us beyond the love from all your heart, beyond the love from all your life, above the loftiest mountains, to be able to love God with all your might. We could not get there if we didn't have to go through this process of having the raging waters of tumultuous chaos. And we're soon going to talk about why. But that experience and to be able to then Go into your words of prayer to be able to then focus on God and God's relationship to me and God's love for me in those tumultuous times to find, to find this, this being able to find this, this help, this, this, what's the word I'm looking for? To be able to find shelter in my relationship with God in those tumultuous times that will be the power and the cause of lifting my love up beyond the normal capacity 
of me being able to love God. Okay? I want to share with you now my own thought about, about this for a moment. Okay? The love for God that coexists equally in whatever measure, I'm quoting Rashi, whatever measure he meets out to you, whether it be the measure of good or the measure of retribution, is the selfless love that cannot be born in the protected environment of a laboratory or a synagogue. They tell a story of a Rosh Yeshiva who he, had a, he provided for his students and his yeshiva without fundraising because he inherited funds and he used those inherited funds to invest and from the returns of his investment he would cover the expenses of the yeshiva. One time he took a high risk and he invested all his funds into a specific investment knowing that when this investment goes through well he'll be able to with peace of mind financial without any financial worries he'll be able to completely immerse himself into his students and his studies of Torah for quite a time so he did it unfortunately this investment went sour and he lost his entire inheritance funds the people were afraid to tell him this so they went over to his parentis and they gave him the task of telling his beloved teacher, his Rosh Yeshiva, that the money is gone. But they warned him, be gentle. Be gentle in how you tell the story. Okay. The student goes over to his teacher and he asks him a Talmud question. He says, Rav, I don't understand. The Talmud in Tractic Brachot says, Kishem shemavorchem ala toiv, kachmavorchem ala ra. The exact way that we bless God for good is the exact way we must bless God for bad. So he said, I don't get it. When we bless God for something good, we're dancing. Is the Talmud telling me that I have to dance when I bless God for something bad? Without a hesitation, his Rosh Yeshiva answered him in the affirmative. To which the student looked down and said, Rav, start dancing. His Rosh Hashiva obviously was a brilliant man. He understood immediately what a student just told him and he literally fainted. Finally, when they were able to bring him to, he looked up into the eyes of his student and said, now I too don't understand that Talmudic teaching. The type of selfless love it takes to be able to say, no matter what God does to me, whether it be good or whether it be bad. I shouldn't use the word bad because God doesn't do bad. Let me use the word sad. No matter what God does, I will bless him for what he's doing with the same passion and joy. That is not humanly possible it's not within the human capacity to dance at my child's bris at my child's bas mitzvah at my child's wedding the way i have to dance at god forbid a funeral it's just impossible you don't dance at a funeral and it doesn't have to be so drastic as a funeral you're talking about the tumultuous fear there's a fear today of earning a living 
There's a fear of losing our house. There's a fear of our kids being kicked out of school just because we can't pay tuition. You're going to tell me that if, God forbid, one of those things happens, I'm going to dance? The person's going to dance when he makes a $10,000 deal the way he's going to dance when a foreclosure notice from the bank comes in the mail? What does it mean to love God with all your might? And Rashi says what it means. To be able to coexist equally. My love for God is to coexist equally in the times of when God is doing to me good or when God is doing to me sad. What does that mean? What it means is, however, that it is precisely in the time when I'm going through chaos in my life. It is precisely the time when I'm going through tumultuous, raging fear of earning a living or the lack thereof. It is specifically at those moments, if I'm able then to just create a bubble around me, go into my prayers, not think about anything other than the goodness and compassion of God and God's love for me, and God's protection over me and how God is personally handcrafting everything I'm going through in my life. If I'm able, smack after I get the foreclosure notice, smack after I get the pink slip from my work, smack after I just got a crazy $2,000 unexpected bill and where am I supposed to pay this for, from? And then, right then, I create my ark. I sit down to pray and not just to race through the words. To stop and think about God. God is good. God is compassionate. And I think about God's relationship with me. How he's carried me through everything. You all know the famous poem, Footprints, right? You know the famous poem, Footprints? Are you familiar with it? So not even when times I felt alone, it wasn't my alone. My feet weren't touching the ground. God's was. God's carrying me. If I can do that precisely in that tumultuous time of fear and chaos, being so overwhelmed, that is the precise moment when I can create that type of love which surpasses beyond my earth, beyond the loftiest mountains, and takes me into unprecedented experience of loving God with all your might. So my love is for God, and thus whatever God does to me, I'm loving Him equally. In closing, through coming into the word of prayers in the times of the waters of the flood, and finding the love of with all your might, we transform the waters of the flood into the waters of comfort. Thus the two names that you heard. Bringing us to a sisterhood with God and to a level where the words of prayer and oneness with God naturally flows from our mind, heart, and lips. Thank you. Amen.